If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improved jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I didn't personally hear the noise. It was my father who shared this story with me upon returning from an early morning hunting trip. He admitted that he couldn't identify the source of the sound, leaving open the possibility that it could have been a Bigfoot. However, he chose not to report it, considering it too absurd. Based on his account, though, I'm inclined to believe that it was indeed a Sasquatch. The incident occurred during the early hours of the morning, before the sun had even risen. Positioned on a ridge, my father patiently awaited the first light of day hoping to spot any deer in the vicinity. As the sun gradually made its appearance, the chorus of birdsong filled the air, but as soon as the sun crested over the eastern mountain, a distinct sound reached his ears. Instantly, the avian symphony fell silent, as if abruptly muted. In that hushed moment, my father discerned the unmistakable sound of an animal crashing through the creek below. A peculiar sensation washed over him, causing the hairs on the back of his neck to stand on end. Instinctively, he felt a strange foreboding and promptly decided to leave the area. In recounting the noise, my father likened it to the echoing reverberation of metal meeting metal within a vast chamber. The sound seemed to originate from a considerable distance, possibly from the next mountain over, although he couldn't determine the precise direction. While I wasn't personally present to witness these events, the sincerity in my father's voice and the eerie details he shared leave little doubt in my mind that something truly extraordinary occurred that morning. 
a fleeting encounter with the mysterious Sasquatch. While I was stationed in Cherry Point, I had the duty of inspecting the Marines' barracks on Thursday morning after field day. Most rooms were normal. Dust bunnies here, scum stained there, but one day I stumbled across something disturbing. I went through one Marine's room. He was a Avy cat, and I noticed his wall locker was unlocked. Whenever I see unlocked wall lockers, I would go through them just for kicks. Well, this devil had somehow accumulated about 20 pairs of women's underwear. Some were even marked. When confronted, SENM stated, It's not a crime to have women's thongs. Turns out it is when you steal it from the laundry room. I'm in the Marine Corps, not spooky in a supernatural way, but in A, I can't believe they're just going to let this slide way. One of the guys in my old unit was a quiet, keep-to-himself kind of guy. Nice person, but of course he got messed with. After a while, he had enough of it and explained to one of my friends that he had a stabbing list, and you're the first one on it. He reports the incident. They file paperwork to process him out of the Marine Corps. After six months, they just let it go. So there's a guy still on active duty with a clear mental issue, and I'm just kind of waiting to see him snap. Edit. I never personally if with any of my Marines from the time I joined until now, as I said. This was a friend doing this. I remember what it was like having some asshole mess with me when I was a boot just for that reason. I pride myself on treating everyone I came in contact with with respect. I've seen how people think by picking up rank they're no longer required to work and automatically think they're special. I've made it a point to work side by side my Marines instead of kicking back and supervising. I've stood up for myself and others numerous times when our worthless chain of command tried to push everyone assuming they'll just take it and never speak for themselves knowing damn well their actions aren't justified. As I've said, many military members will always out with the new guy. I don't necessarily agree with it because the only thing accomplished by that is having co-workers who have no respect for you. I can't control what others do, but I guarantee any of the Marines that work with me will tell you good things because I worked right by their side and had them call me by name and not rank since I don't think most military norms actually work. To begin, I'll admit that we were hiking, not hunting. I was with my brother-in-law. In the Appalachians, it's usually snowy in December, but that year it was a constant 40 female or so and too foggy to see very well. We made our way into a dense rainforest area and found what looked like an extremely overgrown, rarely trodden erosion forming a path. This didn't make sense. It was on the back of an inconvenient mountain peak, very craggy and not on the way to anywhere, not even another trail. So we followed it. The deciduous canopy lay rotting on the winter ground, but little sunlight broke through anyway due to the deep fog and mountain shadow. It felt haunted. We descended into a hollow with a small creek at the bottom and rounded a bend into a dense clump of rhododendron. Inside this rhododendron rush, we started to see weird things like decaying rope, rusted metal, paracord, and supplies. Then the trail ended between two oak trees that formed a window through the brush. We could see a rusted body of metal with face-sized holes of glass on the sides. We made out the shape of a small plane from the scattered pieces. The body was only in two pieces, but the wings were unrecognizable. There was a bit of graffiti on the plane, but not as much as you would expect. It had clearly been there for a while, but some of the original gear was still in the body. I wrote down the number on the side for reference. When I got home, I googled the plane number and found a result. Accident report. March 1977, Western North Carolina. Damaged beyond repair. One passenger, one fatality. Body recovered. 
plane unsalvageable. We found the plane in 2016. That wreckage had been left to rot for 39 years, and some of the gear still had not been stolen. I know it was only one death, but that place had a deeply unsettling aura. I am not superstitious. I do not believe in ghosts, but there was something strange about that place, and I won't forget it. I didn't crawl into the plane's body, both out of fear and because I wanted to be respectful to whoever died there, but I did take pictures of it all from the outside. Yesterday I took my son fishing. He wanted to go to a nearby lake that we haven't been to in quite some time. It's not known to be a great area. For some background, the last time we went, about a year ago, a car drove by and screamed nice ass at me while I stood there with my young son. This kind of garbage behavior is unfortunately expected in the area. It's also known to be a late-night hookup spot as well as a late-night drug deal location. Due to the lake's reputation, I had made a deal with my dad that I wouldn't stay there past 4 p.m. without him. On to the story. My 12-year-old son, who looks much younger than he is, and I pulled up at our favorite fishing spot, a small pond on the opposite side of the road is the lake. Almost immediately, an older gentleman approached us asking if there were fish in the pond. I replied that we had just gotten started, so nothing yet, but that we had caught fish in the pond on plenty of other occasions. He thanked us for the information and returned to his spot on the other side of the road. About fifteen minutes later, another younger man approaches the older man with a dog. I can see and hear them chatting, but they've made no move to involve us in the conversation, which I'm glad for. I just want to enjoy a day with my son. Unfortunately, the water in the pond was incredibly low and murky, and I could tell we weren't going to have any luck. I tell my son to pack it up and we'll try another. Spot on the other side of the lake, as we begin packing our gear into the trunk, the younger man yells over, sorry if my dog and I ran you off. I tell him it's no problem, and we were simply moving to a better fishing spot. He then starts telling me how nice it is to see a mom taking her kid fishing, how you don't see that very often, etc. I get this a lot, so I'm pretty used to it. We have a short conversation about it as I pack up and I then move towards the driver's side doors to depart. Before I can leave, the younger man starts up another conversation, this time asking me how old I think he is. This feels strange to me, but I'm nice to a fault sometimes, so I answer a question. I tell him I'm a horrible judge of age, but maybe 25. He tells me he's 30, 8, and I'm too kind, and I laugh it off saying something like I work with teenagers, so they always guess me well above my age just to be mean. He asks where I work, and I stupidly tell him my city. Turns out he lives there too, and starts going on and on about how he got a free apartment on such and such street because his baby mama kicked him out of their house. I think he's talking about some kind of government assistance program. Weird flex, but okay man. At this point I'm standing by the car door with my hand on the handle and my son is already in the back seat. This guy can't take the hint and starts telling me all about his awful baby mama and how women are supposed to be submissive, quiet, and do what they're told. He specifically said, I mean, it's cool that you can bait a hook or whatever, but you're still a woman. Now my alarm bells are blaring. This guy struck up a conversation by commending me for doing a typically dad thing with my kid. Now he's putting me down for the same thing. He's gone from being overly friendly and complimentary to agitated and ranting. I should have been rude and just got in the car and left, but I've unfortunately been conditioned, like many women, to be polite, even when we're uncomfortable. Instead, I start making comments in the hopes he'll see I'm not some meek, submissive woman who's going to agree with him. After all, I'm a tatted-up chick with an eyebrow piercing and two lip piercing, I don't exactly look like a submissive little housewife. I guess I was trying to make him just as uncomfortable as he made me in the hopes he'd leave me alone. After he says women shouldn't be loud or opinionated, I tell him, 
Oh, well, you wouldn't like me at all. He tries to backpedal, saying, I mean, it's okay to be loud, I guess. But don't try that with your man. You know, I say my man doesn't tell me shit. I do what I want. This kind of back and forth goes on for a while before he finally shakes his head and says, I just don't understand what kind of woman would act like that. I reply a strong one. As soon as the words left my mouth, the older gentleman yells from his spot on the bank, Yeah, say that again, honey. This distracted the creep long enough for me to hop in the car and lock the doors. I still don't feel safe, though. Unbeknownst to Creepazoid, only two of my car doors actually have functioning locks, but at least they're the two on his side. I put the key in the ignition and turn. No dice. Nothing. Of all the times for my car to act up, it chooses now. Panic is now set in. As I repeatedly try to start my car, I can see him out of the corner of my eye. He's taken notice of my car troubles and is trying to get my attention. As he takes a few steps towards my car, the engine finally roars to life and I peel out of there. Only then do I let my composure crumble and have a long talk with my son about what just happened. To the older gentleman who took notice of my discomfort and provided a distraction, I'd gladly meet with you again any day. To the younger, misogynistic creep, I don't know if I was actually in any danger from you, but my gut said I was. Let's never meet again. Oh, and to my dad, I'll make you a new deal. I'm never going to that lake alone again, regardless of the time of day. Probably too late chime in, and not me, but back in the 70s, my father used to fly freelance charter jobs. One job was flying a dead guy to his funeral destination. On the way there, he ran into some bad weather. Turbulence ensued. He started hearing a strange sound. A human sound. The dead guy behind him was gasping, moaning. Sounded like a forceful her. Her. Before you start thinking the dead guy wasn't actually dead, he was. The rough turbulence was forcing air out of the cadaver's lungs, producing the sound. This is a true story I long awaited to share with your community. So last month I had another encounter with Bigfoot. I was out elk hunting near the Oregon coast, exploring the mountains behind Cannon Beach. I had reached the area near Grassy Lake, accessed by Buchanan Creek Road just past the fish hatchery. As luck would have it, I had spotted a herd of 25 elk emerging from a thicket and managed to shoot a bull. After gutting and quartering the elk, I decided to do some further exploration in the vicinity with my 1989 Ford Escort. Having some time to spare, I grabbed my fishing pole and began ascending towards Grassy Lake. However, before I could get too far away from my car, I heard a strange sound coming from about 250, 300 yards away. Curiosity peaked, I noticed a distinct hump amidst a grove of young Christmas trees, about eight half feet tall. Intrigued, I returned to my car to retrieve my rifle and peered at the hump through my 35 power scope. To my surprise, I observed a hand rising up, pushing one of the trees down. At that moment, I thought I was merely witnessing the rear end of a bear. I continued observing for about an hour and a half, convinced that the bear was unaware of my presence. As a light rain mixed with snow began to fall, I grew somewhat bored and decided to honk the horn of my car. Instantly, the creature's head shot up, towering a foot and a half above the trees. It was then that I realized I was looking at another one of those things. After scanning its surroundings, the head returned to its previous activities, completely disregarding my presence. Another half an hour went by, and the creature remained motionless. I decided to walk up the road behind the Bigfoot on a cliff to get a closer look at what it was doing. The creature was chattering, emitting deep, hollow noises resembling pig grunts. Even from a distance of 150-200 yards, I could see its hands engaged in some sort of activity. I noticed another white truck passing along the road, engaging in what appeared to be road hunting. 
Sensing the approaching vehicle, the Bigfoot lowered itself to the ground until the truck had passed, and then it rose back up. Frustrated by the interruption, I fired a rifle bullet into the air. Startled, the creature's head snapped back up, its gaze frantically searching the surroundings. It locked eyes with me, seemingly unbothered by my presence, as if it couldn't care less who saw it. The creature continued flipping its arm upwards, chattering and stomping its foot, as if urging me to leave. To further deter it, I fired a second round. It shot me a disdainful look before finally departing, sprinting towards a nearby hillside ridge with astonishing speed. It effortlessly traversed the mildly rough terrain in a mere minute and a half before disappearing into the steep Oliver Canyon. The ravine, with its 200-foot depth, provided me with a glimpse of the creature as it moved further into the distant forest, eventually vanishing from sight. Intrigued, I descended to investigate what the Bigfoot had been doing. To my astonishment, I discovered a dead coyote caught in an animal trap. The coyote's neck was broken, with a pool of blood and scattered coyote hair surrounding it. The creature had devoured the entrails and rear half of the animal, leaving only the head and front legs behind. Perhaps if I hadn't scared it away, it would have finished its meal. Coyote hind legs are said to be particularly tender, while the front legs are more muscular. As darkness settled in, I made my way back, planning to return the next day. When I returned to the site the following day, I discovered 24-inch-long footprints left behind by the towering 10-foot-tall Bigfoot. Additionally, I found 10 strands of 5-inch-long hairs clinging to a tree branch. As I reached the base of the 200-foot ravine where the Bigfoot had made its impressive jump, I encountered two deep footprints embedded in the soil. Intrigued, I decided to follow the creature's trail back into the hills. The path exuded a sweet, putrid stench, reminiscent of something deceased. Eventually, I stumbled upon a cave, fairly spacious inside, with a pool of water sourced from a nearby spring. It appeared as though something had slept there, though I couldn't rule out the possibility of it being a bear's den. This story takes place in August of 2013 in the mountains of Southern Oregon. I am a United States AF Security Forces Airman, military policeman. My girlfriend was at work, and as a swelteringly hot day began to turn into thunderstorms, my buddy Nick, another military cop, and I decided to go explore some back roads and get out of the heat in town. Southern Oregon is crisscrossed with logging roads, some actively used and many totally forgotten and grown over. Nick and I spent many of our days off starting on roads that we knew, finding roads we didn't know, driving for hours into the mountains, eventually navigating back to paved roads. On this particular day, with storm clouds building over the mountains, we set off on a road we had never been on and began the drive into the mountains. After driving for around an hour, we hadn't seen nor heard any signs of other people in the woods. We rounded a bend in the thick fir woods and emerged in a meadow that was totally surrounded by thick aspen groves. The meadow was perfectly flat and eerily still. We both noticed the strange stillness almost immediately. No birds, hardly any insect noise, no squirrels, and certainly no other people. On the far side of the meadow, right at the edge of the tree line, there was a picnic table. The table was very odd, however. It was painted a bright orange and was much larger than a typical picnic table in a park. Remarking on this, Nick drove through the meadow to get a closer look. I remember being apprehensive as we approached. The whole scenario was exceptionally strange. The overall silence of the aspen grove was unsettling. Also, it was nearly impossible to see far into the trees as aspens grow extremely close together. When we parked by the table, I hopped out of the passenger seat of the truck to check it out. I'm not very tall, only about five feet five. Regardless, the table was ridiculously oversized and practically unusable. The seats were nearly at chest level, meaning I would have to climb up to even sit on them. 
As I was looking at the table, Nick called me over to the truck, and I noticed he was looking back into the Aspens. At first, I couldn't see what he was looking at, but then I noticed a splash of color that was completely out of place in the thick trees. A small one-man tent was set back in the trees, about 50 feet from the strange table. I had an initial feeling of dread, and felt certain that there was someone in the tent. And if we could see the tent, they could. See us. There were no campgrounds in this area. No people, no main roads for miles. Surely someone camping so remotely would be, at the very least, a strange person. However, as we observed the tent, we didn't see any movement or hear any sounds coming from it. Nick suggested I call out. I didn't want to, but I did. Hey, anyone in there? I yelled. No reply, feeling completely on edge. Nick and I thought about driving away and leaving this strange area, but we began to fear the worst. What if there was a body in the tent? What if somebody had gotten kidnapped? Foolish, I know, but we thought it all the same. After some debate, we decided to have Nick turn the truck around to drive away from the camp. Should we need to leave in a hurry, he'd be waiting behind the wheel. With my heart pounding, I started walking through the trees towards the tent. I was totally keyed up with my senses on full alert. When I reached the campsite, several things struck me as odd. Backpacks were scattered all over. No fire had been built, no wood collected. The tent. The tent was literally full of backpacks and women's clothing. Full of dread, I, I turned to leave and tell Nick what I had seen. As I left, I heard Nick start yelling. Let's go. Let's get the F out of here. Not knowing why he was yelling, I ran back to the truck. When I broke out of the trees, I saw a beat-up old Ford Taurus on the road, blocking us from leaving the meadow. I immediately leapt into the passenger seat, and Nick floored the gas pedal. The car was occupied by two men. A third person was laying against the window in the back. As we drove across the meadow, the driver attempted to block us from the road, but Nick drove around them and accelerated the way we had come from. I looked back and saw the car attempting to turn around on the narrow road. Nick drove like a madman, and though I was honestly terrified that they would catch up, we hit the, the highway without seeing the car again. I still do not know if the person in the back was male or female. I called the state police, and they promised to send a trooper out to check out the scene. However, I received a call the next day from a trooper stating that the campsite, the backpacks, and the women's clothing was all gone, though he could tell people had been in the area. The strange table was still by the thick aspen grove. I have not returned to the area, and do not intend to. I was recently working near a river in the British Columbia wilderness when about 20 meters from me and my co-worker, we heard loud footsteps crashing through the trees. My co-worker yelled out, Nothing. The footsteps continued, but after he yelled out a second time, the footsteps stopped and then things went completely silent. There was other people in the vicinity throughout the week, but to our knowledge. Nobody there that day. I grew up hunting, and I am very familiar with the fauna of western Canada. It sounded like a bull, or cow, moose, or elk, perhaps a sizable buck. But to my knowledge, they don't have the smarts to actively hide from humans when they are yelled at. Same with bears. Mountain lions, however, do. But I don't believe one would ever be so loud and clumsy sounding. WTF was in the woods. I'm not above thinking it was perhaps a Bigfoot. Or was it a sinister person? I worked at a dog sledding company in northern Ontario this past winter. Our building was about a kilometer from the dog kennels. I know very well the routine barking and howling you mentioned. Our dogs, about 35, would do it usually twice a night. To other people, it sounds aggressive, but when you know the dogs and their barking, it sounds fine. I've never liked being outside at night, and my housemates like to have a fire most nights about 50 feet from the building. One night, I was sitting in the common area reading about 11 p.m. Suddenly, they came bursting into the house, yelling, 
I could hear the dogs barking, and over my friends yelling in panic, I could hear something wasn't right with the dogs. The barks were shrieking and short. Something was happening. Occasionally, a dog would get out and pick a fight with another dog. That's what it sounded like, the aggressive growl barking. I stayed at the building while the others piled into the cub cadet to go break up the fight. They came back ten minutes later, white as ghosts. A wolf had gotten in, and a few of the dogs and one kennel had torn the fencing down and attacked it. Wolf was on the ground dying. Four of our dogs were laying around the kennel in pieces, two more dying. They shot the two dogs and wolf and were coming back to take a few minutes before picking up the pieces. The rest of the pack may still have been around because it's unlikely one wolf killed six dogs by itself. I don't work there anymore. Way too intense for me. Last night I left to go home from a camping trip in Arizona. And let me tell you all, something scared the shit out to me. I was driving back home to Cali from the forest. In Forest Lakes, Arizona with my boyfriend in the car. Suddenly we see a huge dog looking creature with white and brown on it. It was running in and out of the trees on our left side. My boyfriend and I try to slow down to see what the heck it was. But all of a sudden, when I barely can get a glimpse, it started sprinting at my car on my side. Mind you, I had the windows down. It was a cool night, but I shit you not. I freaking didn't hesitate to hit that gas pedal and GTFO there. I didn't care to look back or anything. I had that gut feeling and wanted out. But yeah, weird situation. Does anyone know what I might have seen? I know what a dog looks like in animals, but this thing gave me a whole different vibe. Just today I found a trail cam facing a daycare on one of the properties I manage. I cut it out of the tree. It's pretty creepy because the SD card is full of pictures from DC 30 2017 to Jan 1 2018. So in three days, the entire thing got full and no one came back for it for over a year now. There's no pictures of anyone setting it up. There's several pictures of cars driving by and an occasional picture of someone entering or exiting the building. But you can't make out any faces or license plates and again, no images of anyone setting it up or walking near it at all. Me and my co-workers came up with a few theories first and easiest as a pervert. He got locked up or something else, and that's why the SD card hasn't been cleared of data in over a year. Second is a police investigator or fraud investigator because the camera is facing the front door in a handicapped parking spots. With someone claiming disability and handicap when they really weren't, and the camera was put there to catch them walking with ease. Still doesn't explain why the trail cam would still be there, though. Last is a jealous or suspicious lover spying on someone. Did they see what they needed and kill themselves? Did they kill the other person and get locked up? Maybe they had multiple trail cams and got the info they needed off a different one. Very creepy to me, though. I don't really believe in any cryptids, though the idea of them is fun, except for Mothman. Around the time of these sightings in mid-fall 2017, I lived in a small town in southeast Michigan, Aikland County, and was attending high school. My older sister, who is nine years my senior and had a similarly timed work schedule, drove me to school extra early every morning so I could attend an extra hour and fit another class into my schedule. It was awful and started at 6 a.m., but we only lived about 15 minutes from my school, so it wasn't all that bad of a drive. One morning, we were making our way to the school, as per usual, through some super curvy wooded back roads by our house, a route we took every day. Suddenly, in a break between the section of road we were on, just between the third curve and the last curve before the road straightened out, I noticed two glowing red spots about maybe 600, 800 feet in the distance. 
At first, I brushed it off, as the area was known for deer, and the spacing for eyes wasn't too far off, but I couldn't shake the wrong feeling I had. The eyes just weren't the right color to be reflecting deer eyes, and as we neared closer, it became apparent to me that if these indeed were eyes, the figure was far too tall to be any type of animal I could think of. It was still really dark out, so I was only able to make out the eyes and a dark black silhouette before. As our headlights were finally near enough to begin illuminating the figure, it took off into the sky like a literal bat out of hell. It moved incredibly fast, and before it took off the dark silhouette expanded significantly in a manner that was incredibly similar to how birds use their wings to take off. Before I could hardly register what had just happened, it disappeared over the tree line and out of sight. At first I was worried I was seeing things, however, as I looked over at my sister. I was met with a mirror of my same shocked expression. She asked incredulously if I had just seen that too, and we began conferring about what we just saw. I was relieved to hear that I wasn't going crazy as she described the same things I had also just seen. I still think about that morning to this day and was surprised when a couple of years after it, I came across your articles and reports. A lot of the sightings and encounters you compiled dated around the same time. I saw what, I believe more and more every year, had to be Mothman. I've been going through this for a long time. I'm 20, 8 and feeling frustrated, lost and ready to die. Recently, I had an encounter with a person, entity that made me realize I'm not crazy. It's important to be careful about what you believe, because childhood stories can turn out to be real. These entities are present all the time, often unnoticed. They appear as flickers of light, similar to the sparks when you hold your breath or get hit hard. Their intelligence in observing us is a mistake on their part. It all started when I was a child, always curious and seeking to understand how everything worked. I had knowledge beyond my years, even though I didn't fully comprehend it. The adults knew I was different. They control everything, and we're caught in the middle of their game. Demons, ghosts, fairies, trolls, Nephilim, and even aliens are real. I've seen more than my fair share of them. I'm dead serious about this, and if you put me on a lie detector, you would know. When I was eight, I discovered a circle mark on my stomach. Months later, I developed a sixth sense, predicting when things would go wrong. I could also sense the emotions of both humans and animals. At the age of 13, I witnessed shadows moving at the end of my bed, and I would become paralyzed with fear. When I woke up, I had a brand on my right hand. At 16, the shadows appeared again, and I woke up with a brand on my chest. This mark stayed with me until I was 18. At 20, my gift of sensing emotions became overwhelming, making it hard for me to go anywhere without having an anxiety attack. At 22, a deep, beautiful voice spoke to me, telling me to search for the golden compass using a golden seal. I couldn't come up with something like that on my own, and I couldn't find any information about it. When I turned 23, I experienced the touch of death when something grabbed my shoulder, leaving me frozen with fear. On July 9th, at the age of 23, I had a terrible feeling that something horrible was about to happen. The next day, my fiancé died in a car accident, drowning upside down in a pool. Since then, the entities that visit me at night have become hostile, trying to paralyze me, but I won't let them. I fought against one of them recently and was able to break free. Now, at 28, I'm ready to ask for help. People like me, with unique abilities, are seen as threats by these entities. They have their own plan, and we need to figure out which side we're on. The sweltering heat of the Mexican desert bore down upon us as our special forces unit moved stealthily through the arid landscape. We were hunters, stalking the most dangerous prey imaginable, cartel leaders. This was the heart of Mexico, a place where shadows concealed secrets darker than the night. 
I had been part of this elite team for years, seasoned by countless operations against the relentless drug lords who terrorized this country. Our latest target, Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, the elusive kingpin who had managed to evade capture for so long. The cartel's reach was vast, its influence undeniable, but we were unrelenting in our pursuit. Our coalition consisted of Mexican special forces in the United States. Dia, united by a common goal, to dismantle the cartel's empire and bring El Chapo to justice. We had chased leads, tracked down informants, and followed every threat of intelligence that promised to lead us closer to our quarry. The desert stretched endlessly before us as we closed in on one of El Chapo's rumored hideouts. The intel was sketchy as always, but this was our best lead yet. We moved with utmost caution every step calculated to avoid tipping off our prey. As we approached the location, my heart pounded with a mix of anticipation and dread. The stories about El Chapo's ruthlessness were notorious, but I knew we couldn't afford to falter. Lives depended on our success, and the weight of that responsibility hung heavy on my shoulders. Our unit moved in, each member like a well-oiled machine, silent and precise. But as we entered the hideout, something caught my eye, something inexplicable amidst the chaos of the drug trade. In the dim light, I saw it, an entity so bizarre it defied all rational explanation. The creature stood on two legs, much like a man, but its appearance was far from human. It was covered in coarse jet black fur, which seemed out of place for the time of year. Its eyes were wide and glowing pulsating with an eerie white light. My gaze was drawn to its long arms, not quite as extended as an ape's, but hanging close to its chest. Its hands had only three fingers resembling claw-like appendages more than anything else. I tried to contain my shock and whispered a warning to my comrades, but as soon as the creature sensed our presence, it moved with an unnatural swiftness, darting into the shadows of the hideout Panic rippled through our ranks as we fumbled to locate the intruder, our training momentarily forgotten. When I finally managed to tell my colleagues about the creature, they scoffed and exchanged incredulous glances. They accused me of being high or asleep, deprived dismissing my account as the product of a stressed mind. The mission took precedence, and they insisted that we focus on our primary objective, capturing El Chapo. Though I pushed aside the bizarre encounter for the time being, I couldn't help but feel a nagging unease. It wasn't until later, when I had a moment to reflect, that I realized how eerily real the creature had been. The memory of its pulsating white eyes haunted my thoughts, like a phantom lurking in the corners of my mind. Our pursuit of El Chapo continued relentlessly, culminating in a dramatic operation that led to his capture. The victory was bittersweet, for the shadows of Mexico held more mysteries than we could comprehend. Years later, as I recounted my story to those who had never ventured into the depths of the cartel's world, they too dismissed it as a figment of my imagination. But I knew the truth, that in the heart of darkness, where reality and myth converged, our mission had brought us face to face with the inexplicable a creature that defied the boundaries of reason and existence. About a decade ago, I went looking for deer sheds in a new place here in northeast Oregon. I had a pretty good day and picked up a few buck horns. As a chronic sufferer from nextrigitis, I was still a few miles from my truck as it was getting dark. I had stupidly left my headlight in the truck, so I knew it was going to be a long evening fumbling in the snow and deadfall timber. Right at dark, I heard a wolf howl in the bottom of the canyon, maybe three-quarter mile directly downhill. Big country. I thought to myself, well, that's pretty cool. Then heard another respond a few hundred yards closer. I was really enjoying the experience until another responded 100 yards behind me in the pitch-black timber with a much deeper, gut-wrenching howl. 
After a moment of silence, the surrounding area ignited with howls in every which direction, no longer really enjoying the experience. I unstrapped a 4PT shed to protect myself and began the trek towards my truck, which was right in line with the source of the deep, commanding howl. So off I go in the pitch-black timber in a remote area I had never been before, with nothing but a 60 FT shed to protect myself. Meanwhile, the wolves were communicating back and forth until the Alpha would howl and shut them up momentarily with the eeriest howl you can imagine. This continues as I make my way through the woods. However, every time the Alpha would howl, it was still 100 yards behind me. After this happens a few times, I get a solid idea of what is taking place. It's following me. All I can do is keep hiking. After a while, I make it back to a trail and scoot pretty quickly back to my truck. Upon reviewing Google Earth later that night and identifying landmarks, I determined that the wolf stayed right behind me for two half miles as I fumbled my way in a V-shaped line back to my truck. The next day and subsequent weekends, I went back properly armed, and counted at least ten wolves in that pack and was able to identify the alpha based on his howl, a big old gray colored one. I've had cats creep up on me at night, had my share of supernatural experiences, none backcountry related, thankfully, but nothing will make a guy feel more vulnerable than walking through the pitch black woods without a headlight, without a side, arm, not really knowing where he's going pre on X or GPS for me, and being followed by the Alpha Wolf. Needless to say, I now always carry a headlight, batteries, and some form of protection on me at all times. I go camping now and then, and there's really nice lake out in the woods about three, four hours walk east of Oslo, Norway. It's a popularish camping spot, so a friend and I are running out of firewood and it's pitch black, bad planning plus whiskey drunk. So we grab our flashlights and head out to get some more bits and pieces to keep the fire going. Now the lake is large and dotted around the lake we can see about three, four fires going. Other happy campers, one campsite in particular is rowdy. It's a good 200 meters across the lake, but we can hear them chanting and singing football songs and generally be obnoxious. It's about 2 a.m. now and we want to sleep. I can do this weird thing with my voice. I let all the air out of my lungs and then breath in really fast and tighten my voice box. I can create this ungodly banshee and human scream that is loud and does not sound human. So I go for it. Within a second, the noise from other campsites stop, and the fires are doused within ten seconds. You could hear a pin drop all across the lake. Silence. Sheer terrified silence. Even my campmate was freaked out. He'd never heard me do it before. I'm from Victoria, Australia, and an avid hiker and camper. I feel most at home in the bush and in the mountains with my boys practicing bushcraft and survival. It's the best form of therapy. I have a deep respect for nature and believe we're not being told and taught what is really out there. My story goes back to the year 1998, when I was 18 at the time, in Gippsland, Victoria. This was dairy country with beautiful rolling green hills. This night, I and my friend had gone to the town of Moe to spend some time at a nightclub. The club closed around 2 a.m., so we decided to head back to my hometown of Uragon, which is only about a 25-minute drive. As we got on the Princess Freeway to head back to home, the fog really set in. It was very thick. We had music playing and talking away about our night out, driving very slowly. Just before getting to the town of Trafalgar, there is the Trafalgar Cemetery, which is just outside of the town on the left side of the highway. As we came along the road into a slight bend, which was to the left, all of a sudden something jumped into the middle of the road. The hairs on the back of my neck are standing up. This thing was huge, and I mean big. I've never seen anything like this in my life. 
We have no animals this big in Australia, so I've thought until this night. My friend Adam was driving. He slammed on his brakes. This creature was on all fours, but it wasn't. It was hard to describe. It just stopped and stared at us, and this thing is only twenty-five to thirty feet away from us in the open and heavy fog. It was covered in hair, longer on the forearms and the legs, gray to black, silvery in the headlights. The eyes were glowing red and big. The hands, feet, and arms were massive and very long, thick and muscular. It just sat there in a squat position. The head and face resembled a wolf, but the snout was shorter and more pushed in. The height of this thing to its head had to be at least five to six feet off the ground, and this thing is squatting. So try to picture this thing if it stood up. The shoulders had to have been three to four feet wide. It felt like a good minute of looking at each other, but it was probably closer to ten to fifteen seconds. My face was up against the windshield, trying to figure out what I'm looking at. My friend Adam burst into tears instantly from fear. Being cold outside, you can see this thing taking massive inhales and exhales and the chest moving in and out. It moved in a way like it didn't know whether to attack or flee. It was terrifying to look at. Then all of a sudden, its body shifted to its left and the amount of power it generated to leap itself off was the most impressive thing I have ever seen. For such a massive animal to spring itself off and bang, it was gone in one bound. This is on a three-lane highway. It was in the middle. It cleared the road in one leap. I don't know how long, but it felt like a long time in silence without him crying. A part of me didn't want it to leave. This hasn't stopped me from going into the wild remote bush solo. Well, about three years ago, I went out with a friend on his yacht off the coast of Newfoundland. It was around maybe two or three in the morning in early fall, so there was a bit of fog, nothing too serious. We were just going out for a late night cruise to relax and see if we could find any cool fish inverts, etc. near the surface. After an hour or so of uneventful yachting, we decided to call it a night and turn around. As we started heading back to shore, behind us we noticed a dim red light in the distant fog. We slowed down to watch it. It was slowly blinking, which stopped us from noticing that it was creeping towards us. We went inside to grab my friend's camera, and when we came back it seriously closer and moving quicker too. We could now hear the hall groaning as if it was under pretty heavy tension. We took a picture with flash, and the light stopped blinking. The ship started to speed up, so my friend got on the radio, not too familiar with how the system works, so fill in the blanks here, experts, and started trying to find a wavelength they were on so he could tell them to slow down and go around us. When we came out of the cabin, it was basically right upon us. Like less than ten feet away, this huge rusty ship with a red light on the nose Next thing we know, it's hours later, and we're waking up to sunrise. The yacht had been drifting freely for hours with the engine still off. Our cameras were gone, as was my cell phone. My friend's was a shitty cameraless phone. We reported it to the police, but they laughed us off as two young guys who got too drunk and couldn't handle ourselves out there. We weren't drinking, though, so we know something happened. This story is my husband's and occurred in the 1970s. He was erecting fences with a maid in rural Springbrook, which is in the Gold Coast hinterland about 70 kilometers south of Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. There's a very hilly region, dense rainforest. They were cutting a fence line when they smelled a horrible stench and heard a noise that sounded like a combination of a pig grunting and a dog growling about 20 meters away. They couldn't see anything due to the dense bush. My husband turned to his mate, who was a big man, to find him already running full speed in the opposite direction. He then took off after him. They returned to the job two days later after stopping at the forest ranger station on the way to ask him if there had been any reports of wild boars in the area. 
The ranger laughed and said it was possible and then told him that part of his job was to keep the walking and hiking trails clear of weeds and brush. He'd walk the trails with a machete looking just ahead of him at his feet and clearing any unwanted vegetation when he smelled a stench and the hairs on the back of his neck stood up. Looking up, he saw a bipedal brown hairy creature staring at him about 13 meters ahead. He froze and stared at it until it turned and disappeared into the thick scrub. My husband and his mate continued on to the fence job but did not hear, smell, or see anything again. A few years later, they were working in a similar landscape. Near the location of the previous encounter, they had heard from several local farmers who had heard similar noises to what they had heard previously and who had seen a hairy bipedal creature run into their paddocks grab a sheep or a calf, and then run back into the dense forest. There are Yoey researchers who have had similar encounters and have taken thermal images of a large bipedal creature. We know they exist. When we get the chance, my father and a few of his friends go camping up in Baxter State Park in Maine. For anyone who doesn't know, it's a pretty secluded section of the state, and pretty much everything surrounding the park grounds is also wilderness. While up there, we took a hike to some fishing ponds buried deep in the woods. The trails were mostly overgrown, and the destination was a place that you really had to be in the know to find it. My dad's friend, who was accompanying, is a native Mainer and knows lots of secret fishing spots like that. Needless to say, not too many people walk those trails, and the closest town is hours and hours away. Well, anyways, my dad's friend starts talking about this old store in the woods he remembered from his childhood. He said fishermen in the area knew about it, and you could get bait and ice and few other minor conveniences. He said he hadn't been there since childhood, but faintly remembered it being somewhere near where we were. I remember thinking it was bullshit, just a made-up story. My dad's friend is a charming guy, but he's known to tell some tall tales. Considering how far out in the wilderness we were, I thought it was absolutely ludicrous for any store, or any other human, for that matter, to be nearby. I mean, the closest road you could take a car on was about two hours from where we were on the trail. But sure enough, about 45 minutes later, we come to this pond and the trail forks. My dad's friend just says, this is it. This is the path to the store. I remember it. So he starts walking down one of the paths, which extended a good ways, about half a mile around the perimeter of the pond. We get to a clearing in the woods, and it just opens up into this huge field with about ten of what appeared to be houses or living compounds. It slightly reminded me of that town specter from Big Fish. I was absolutely shocked to see any trace of humanity. If you know the area of Maine I'm talking about, you would be too. The place was completely empty, but none of the buildings looked run down. The whole property was definitely maintained. We started to walk around, and after a couple minutes, this really old guy with a thick Maine accent came out of one of the houses, and my dad's friend went up to talk to him. Turns out the store was real, and we bought some ice and left. I half expected to hear the Twilight Zone theme when I saw this place. Not really creepy, but very mysterious. I'm still shocked that such a strange random place like this exists in the world, and I still have so many unanswered questions to this day. Why so far out in the middle of nowhere? What were all the other buildings for? Where was everyone else? How does this one guy live two hours from the closest road and survive, let alone get any business? I was 60, one years old, when I had the most unusual encounter of my life. I'm an unassuming man, steady and phlegmatic, with a thick brush of white hair and a craggy outdoorsman's face. I enjoy a pint and a dram, but I never indulge when I'm working. I've spent my entire adult life working as a forester in the Deshmont Woods located in Livingston, West Lothian, Scotland. 
On the morning of Friday, November 9, 1979, I set off with my red setter Laura to check the woods on Deshmont Law for stray sheep and cattle. It was a damp day, and as I parked the van and set off down the forest track, the noise of the Edinburgh Glasgow motorway was muffled by the thick, dark fir trees. The dog ran ahead, and my trudging Wellingtons made the only sound. Then, as I turned a corner into a clearing filled with light, I saw it, an unidentified flying object, UFO. The object had a dark gray color, and its texture was like an emery board, with small, brighter highlighted areas against a darker background. The appearance of the exterior seemed to change, as if the UFO was attempting to camouflage itself. I estimated its size to be around 18, 20 feet in diameter and about 12 feet high. It looked as if it was mounted on a ring, resembling a hat with a brim. There were also protruding stems topped by propellers on the outside of the craft. Nothing on the object was moving at the time. Suddenly, two small spheres rushed at me. They were like miniature versions of the large craft, making a sound as they approached, with spikes on the outside making contact with the ground. They stopped by my side and attached themselves to my trousers, dragging me back toward the UFO. I was overwhelmed by an extremely strong smell, causing me to struggle for air, and I soon lost consciousness. When I regained consciousness, the UFO and the smaller spheres were gone, but Laura, my red setter, was still with me. She was unsettled, running around and barking madly. As I tried to call out to her, I realized I had no voice. I couldn't stand either. Eventually, I crawled back the way I had come for about 300 feet. Gradually, I was able to stand up and walk back to my pickup truck. I attempted to contact the forestry headquarters using my two-way radio, but found that my voice had not yet returned. I tried to drive back home in my pickup truck, but it got stuck in the mud. So I began the long walk back to my house, which was approximately a mile away, and finally arrived at 11.15 a.m. My entire experience had lasted just over an hour. By the time I reached home, my wife was shocked to see my condition, covered in mud with torn pants. I began telling her the story of what had happened. She wanted to call the police, but I was against it, considering the subject matter. However, I allowed her to call my job supervisor, Malcolm Drummond, and inform him about the incident. While she made the calls, I took a bath to clean up. Drummond, being eager to find out what had happened, called a physician and immediately drove to my house. He questioned me while I was still in the bathtub. We both agreed that there must be some kind of physical evidence left on the ground by either the craft or the small spheres, so we headed back to the area to investigate. However, Drummond couldn't find the exact location. Dr. Gordon Adams arrived and examined my condition. He found grazed areas on my left leg and under my chin, but no apparent head injuries. At that time, my body temperature, blood pressure, and other functions seemed normal. Adams called for an ambulance to take me to the hospital for a head x-ray and a counseling session. However, I decided to postpone the hospital visit as I had planned to visit relatives over the weekend and didn't want to miss the trip. Word of the encounter spread, and soon the press caught wind of it. By Sunday, the incident was known all over the United Kingdom, and within a week, it had gained worldwide attention. The story was featured in television documentaries, magazines, and books. Even the company I worked for erected a plaque at the site to commemorate the event, although it was later stolen. The local police, inexperienced in dealing with UFO cases, didn't discount my description of the incident. They took testimony from me, my wife, and Dr. Adams. Due to the assault involved, they sent my clothing from that day for forensic examination. A cursory overview revealed torn pant legs at the hip area, and traces of a powder were found. However, it turned out that the powder was just maize starch transferred from the bag used to send in the trousers. The police also investigated any flights that might have occurred that day, but found no evidence of planes, helicopters, or any other equipment in the area. The ground markings, consisting of two parallel ladder-like cracks with holes, confirmed that something had been on the spot. 
I indicated. I was well respected by people in the area, and there was no reason to believe I would hoax such an incident. I had a history of illnesses and surgeries, but there was nothing in my medical records suggesting head injuries or psychosis. I know what I saw, I insisted. My firm belief in my story led the police to open a criminal investigation for assault, making it the only such case in Britain arising from a UFO sighting. The investigation remains open. My neighbors, however, were more skeptical, and eventually I decided to move away to an undisclosed address. Nevertheless, I became the most famous witness to aliens in Britain. My trousers were analyzed by psychics at spiritualist meetings, and on the anniversaries of the sighting, UFO spotters would gather in the clearing, hoping for another encounter. The aliens didn't stop there. Since that November day, West Lothian skies have been filled with glimmering disks, strange lights, and bouncing fireballs. The Falkirk Triangle now records around 300 UFO sightings a year more than any other place on Earth. The Forge Restaurant in Bonnie Bridge, where fireballs sail over the trees and wingless planes are seen in the fields, has become a hotspot. Some experts suggest that West Lothian may be a thin place, offering a window from Earth into another dimension. If we accept my account as true, I was abducted by something otherworldly for about 20 minutes on November 9, 1979. No evidence has emerged to disprove my story. I was respected by those who knew me, and I never sought to profit from my alleged experience. 